Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm speaking with Sylvia Ariton, the founder and CEO of Guide and Grow. She runs My Montessori School in Sydney, Australia, and is an international speaker and trainer for educators and parents, specializing in communication and guiding children's behavior. Sylvia holds an international Montessori 0-3 diploma, 3-6 assistant certificate, international communications degree, and a master's in teaching specializing in early childhood. Sylvia created Guide and Grow from a desire to help raise tomorrow's children and to create a movement towards supporting caregivers on their path to raise future generations. With its roots in Montessori, positive communication, positive discipline, and building children's emotional intelligence, Guide and Grow takes a holistic approach to guiding parents and educators so they can help their children to grow and build lifelong skills. In this conversation, Sylvia shares her path to Montessori and her experiences with multilingualism, both as a child and now as an adult. We also talk about her previous work doing Montessori with the elderly, and she shares her best advice for parents when it comes to navigating the toddler years. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sylvia. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Sylvia. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. I think this is my first ever podcast, so I'm excited. Welcome. Um, To start, I would love for you to introduce yourself. So tell us who you are, where you live and what you do. Yeah, great. I So my name is Sylvia Ariton. Uh, For those who don't know me, I live in Sydney, Australia, as you can tell from my accent. (laughs) I own own and run a Montessori school here in Sydney, Australia. So our school is a zero to six. So we've got the PTP program. So the parent held the programs and we run the preschool Montessori programs. I also am the founder of Guide and Grow. Uh, which is just an online platform. We've got an amazing community. We've got a Facebook group, um, Montessori at Home, zero to three years. And um, Guide and Grow really specializes in helping parents and caregivers on their journey to raise children, especially in those first few years um, with specialization in like guiding behavior and, you know, really supporting children building life skills. So yeah, that's about, that's a little bit about me. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. I'm excited to hear all about Guide and Grow. I've gotten to know the community. It's such a great resource that you've built. Um, and you also, you are my first Australian guest on the podcast. So that is Oh, wow. Exciting. That's even more exciting. I, um, yeah. I didn't mention, I mean, I don't know if you were interested to know about, uh, but I do also sit on the board for Montessori Schools and Centres Australia. So that's a not-for-profit organisation that really helps to lift 
the Montessori practice in schools and centers? Because unfortunately, as you know, probably in US, it's the same thing, but it's not a regulated sector here um, in Australia. So it's something that we're really passionate about, really helping centers and schools, you know, to do that authentic Montessori practice and help them and guide them on their journey as well. So um, that's something I'm really passionate about. Um, all my qualifications from university come from a communications background or my master's in teaching um, on top of all the Montessori um, journey and all the bachelors and things we have to do <laughs> to get through our Montessori yeah. training. So yeah, that's just a little bit about my background of what I do as well. Awesome. That is so cool that you get to be on that board and support schools and teachers. That's such important work. Um, people are always shocked when I tell them that Montessori is not trademarked or really regulated by any one specific governing body. <laughs> no, do you know how many parents call me? And so if they have an inquiry for the school, for example, and they're like, oh, I sent my child to this Mon like Montessori childcare and it it wasn't really what I was looking for, or they were really disappointed at, at how, you know, the educators were or how things were set up and, or, you know, just the philosophy or the fact that they weren't really doing what they thought Montessori was. So this is where the problem comes up. You know, when parents are looking for schools or centers, they don't actually know that there's anyone can use the name, anyone can slap on Montessori and do whatever it is that they want to do with it. And there's no regulatory body for that. So yeah, it's something that we're really trying to encourage centers to approach. You know, we came up with this uh, genuine Montessori pathway, which is a program that you can opt to kind of, you know, start doing as a self-reflection and, you know, try and improve practice, but it's a massive um, issue globally. Yeah. Yeah. This was actually one of my questions for later, but I'm going to ask it now since we're talking about it. What are some things that parents should look for when they're choosing a Montessori school and what should they ask themselves and what should they ask the potential schools that they're visiting? Yeah. So whether you're visiting, so early childhood is a little bit different to schools, for example. Uh, so, but generally I'm going to give the same advice anyway. The first thing I always tell parents, regardless if it's a Montessori school or not, go with your gut feeling. If you feel that that environment feels right to you when you walk into a space, you will know whether it aligns to your values or not. And if you feel comfortable in that space, because it can be the most beautifully set up space, they can have Montessori materials, but if the educators or the staff or the director or the principal don't have the same values or principles of Montessori, which are far more important than looking for activities on a shelf because anyone can buy and put Montessori materials on a shelf, but not everybody follows the actual philosophy as it should be or the values. Do they respect the children? Do they allow children to be part of the curriculum? Do they have mixed age classrooms? You know, whether they're in preschool or primary school or high school, that's a really essential part of the Montessori curriculum. Are the teachers trained? What kind of training do they have? And no, we're not talking about they have to be, you know, one organization trained or the other, because I know that there's a big debate with AMI and AMS and it doesn't matter as long as they have Montessori qualifications of some sort, that's what matters the most. You know, you walk into a lot of childcare centers and they don't have any Montessori trained staff. So how do they expect to truly practice Montessori when they don't know the principles of the practice? It's not about 
the toys. So definitely understanding who are the educators or teachers in the space, you know, look, ask them questions about their qualifications, um, you know, whether or not they have mixed age classrooms and ask them about what the main uh, if it was me, I would be asking them, you know, tell me what you love most about your job or why do you love working in this school or center the most? What does it mean to you? Because that way you're going to get a really authentic and on the spot, you're putting someone on the spot, which I know, you know, a lot of people don't feel comfortable with, but that's when they're going to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I hope that answers the question. That's what I think I would advise. That's so helpful. And I I agree. It is so much about a gut feeling because if a parent feels comfortable and confident about where they're sending their child, then their child will as well. Children are so perceptive and intuitive and they really can sense how their parent feels about where they're going. So I think that is such an important aspect. And the children will also pick up on the educators in the space. You know, how many times have I heard parents say, oh, that was so, they were so strict, you know, in there are some Montessori spaces that are really strict. And it's like, you're not even allowing the kids, this is in early childhood, right? Because that's the sector that I'm in. They're not even allowing the kids to like, you know, be flexible or play with things or, you know, mix a few materials to build a certain construction. Like, you know, like, (laughs) you know, it's, so not, you know, having that that kind of approach that really puts the child as the center of their practice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So important. So tell me about how you first found out about Montessori and what was your Montessori journey? Oh, that's a really interesting story, actually. So I'll never forget in January 2010, I had a major car accident. And at that time I was in the hospitality industry and I was also personal training, which are both very physical jobs. So after I had that car accident, I was pretty much put off work for a good six months to a year. And I did go through a massive journey in terms of like trauma and injury and rehab. And, um, you know, I was on lots of different pain medication and it was a really low point in my life because I had basically, I felt that I had been taken away from everything that I was building, which was my personal training business and, you know, things that you feel passionate about. But then once I started to accept the situation and realize that I'd been put in this position for a reason, and I really need to reflect and understand what it is that I need to do with my life. So I started talking to friends and family about what things I'm good at. So, you know, like I love teaching people, I love interacting with people and And so uh, the conclusion came, one of the topics or one of the choices for me was teaching. And then a friend of mine, her mom was teaching in Montessori in Vienna and she was here on vacation. So then we got together and um, they said, look, you need to have a discussion with her because I think you guys would, you know, really get along and see what she's doing anyway. So she introduced me to Montessori. And as soon as I read about it, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I need to do with my life. I love it. So I fell into, so she helped me do my assistance um, certificate. And then she was actually working with uh, Montessori in the elderly community. So I started working with um, Montessori with in nursing homes with 
adults that had dementia and Alzheimer's because there's a huge study in Montessori about how we can apply the principles and practice of the infancy, so zero to three years, to the elderly and they can act- it can actually help them prolong the symptoms of dementia when, when they're dealing with that. I was so, just talking about this uh, this past weekend, actually. I would love to hear oh, more about that after you finish telling me about your Montessori journey. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, so I ended up then working in um, in a few nursing homes and and actually the activities that I now do with my toddlers and, and um, you know, my infants, I was taking them into the, um, the centres and really working with these amazing people and the joy and the happiness in their face. And as some of the um, carers that work there, they were like, wow, I've never seen them like, you know, interact that way before or talk or even attempt to try and talk. Um, I'll never forget that experience. It was such a humbling experience. It was so grounding. And you will be so surprised the similarities between the first three years of life and the last few years of life and how the development and how the brain works and how there's so many similarities. And Maria Montessori spoke about that. It's just fascinating. So I was presenting this work at um, a massive Montessori school here in Sydney in Balmain, ISMS, and all these directors of schools and centres came out to hear us, you know, present this work. And then I was approached by my first ever boss um, offering a job for the t- in, the to- in a toddler program and that's how I fell into, yeah, Montessori. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. So how long ago was that? How long have you been doing this? Yeah, for? so that was probably, so, I mean, 2010 that was, so probably about, yeah, over 10 years now, like around 12 years or so, 12 years ago. And then yeah. I started working in a few different Montessori schools and then um, the – I was replacing a teacher. So the reason why I got the job is because one of the teachers needed to do her teacher training um, observation hours with her AMI degree. And so my, um, my boss at the time, she was like, oh, you know, can you run a toddler program? I was like, okay, I'll try, you know, and I just got thrown in there, thrown in the deep end. And uh, then I spoke to the teacher that I was replacing and she lived in the same area that I lived. And I told her, I said, look, one day I'll open a Montessori school and you can come and work for me. And lo and behold, uh, she's now been with me for the last eight or nine years. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, Connections that you make in the Montessori community, they tend to like stick around forever. And we are a very small community so everybody knows each other but yeah it's um it's been an incredible journey so then I came out and decided that I want to set up my own Montessori school because the area that I'm in in Sydney the northwest area um there are no Montessori schools out here like authentic Montessori schools there are like lots there are a few child cares but no one that actually does the three to six program or a PTP program or a NEDO program so yeah that's why I came out here to um to really set up a school because there was such a huge demand for it and now we have parents traveling more than like you know 40 minutes just to get here so yeah wow that's amazing and what was your experience doing training like are you, are you three to six trained? Yeah. So I'm actually, so I'm zero to three trained and okay. then I've got my assistant certificate in three to six. So initially we started the school only as a zero to three environment. And then once my kids were all three, they had nowhere to go. <laughs> and then all the parents were like, 
Sylvia, you need to open a preschool. I'm like, where do you want me to open a preschool? I don't have the space. Anyway, so then we transformed the space into a preschool classroom and then we split the day. So we run the toddler program on certain days and we run the preschool program on certain days so that we could accommodate for our community and respond to their needs because all of these kids had nowhere else to go. And then in Australia, they also put down a lot of laws and rules around early childhood. So it was difficult for parents then to send them to a mainstream childcare or somewhere else, you know, that they might not have fit their philosophy or values. So we just, yeah, we just responded to the demand, which is how all my businesses actually started. <laughs> like Guide and Grow started that way as well. And yeah, it's just, it's like an, it's a natural journey that evolves in itself. And I think that's speaks to the Montessori philosophy anyway. Yes, I was going to say that. Yes, responding to the needs of the child, to the needs of the community. That's beautiful. Uh, So what are some of the joys and challenges of running a Montessori school? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've had a really challenging week this week. Did you want me to start with that? Sure, start with the challenges. (laughs) I think everyone listening out there is going to totally relate in some part. When you have the dynamic of a classroom, so look, it's the first term, this term, and we have a lot of new kids coming in, new families, kids moving up from the toddler program. So the dynamic of a classroom is different. It's not, you haven't had kids that have been settled into the three to six program or in their last year. For example, we had, you know, lots of kids last year that had been in the program for a good two years and it was their last term and they were finishing the year. So they're quite into the routine and the rhythm of the space. Whereas in term one, new mix of kids, you know, lots of kids with different needs. Um, It's really uh, a wild roller coaster. <laughs> so every day is a different day, and you've really got to make sure that you've got, you know, enough educators to support all the children and to support each other. You know, the main challenges in a Montessori classroom is that you need to make sure that you have staff that are all working together and that are supporting each other and make sure that you have enough of them. You know, the ratios here in Australia, and I don't know what they are in the US. It's in a normal mainstream, um, in a mainstream preschool or classroom, it's one to 11 children. And then in kindergarten, when they start school, it's like one to 20 or 30 kids. Mm-hmm. So one teacher to 30 kids. And then in preschool, it's one to 11. For me personally, I don't think that's acceptable and I don't think that's high quality. And when we're talking about a Montessori space and you're talking about a high quality learning environment and we value the interactions that we have with the children. It's not about managing the classroom. It's about how do we have high value interactions with the kids and really be there for them to facilitate their interests, to facilitate their projects that they want to work on. And, you know, you need enough people in that space to be able to do that. So the challenges is like finding, you know, staff that are going to fit into that space, making sure that they're all working on the same page, you know, finding out what dynamic works in the classroom, which kids work 
well together? You know, how can we best support these children? Will some children work better with others? Because we've got a mixed age group, right? So sometimes we have some older children and they can really help the younger children. So how can we really manage those uh, schedules so that we can have a really good mix of kids that are going to support each other and support the educators as well? So, you know, we've had a lot of challenges this week with, you know, with supporting children's behavior, big emotions. It happens in every classroom. doesn't matter if you're a Montessori space or not. Kids are going to be kids <laughs> and there's going to be incidents of, you know, big feelings, you know, not getting what they want, turn taking, grabbing. Um, so that's some of the challenges. The joys, of course, are, you know, when the kids just don't want to leave your side, when they tell you that they want to sleep over at school because they don't want to go home, when they cry, when they walk out the door because they don't want to leave me. <laughs> it makes I feel sorry for, you know, the people that are picking them up, whether it's parents or grandparents. But, yeah, it makes my heart feel really warm when kids are just crying because they don't want to leave school. It's clearly we're doing something right. Um, you know, there's little moments of joy when the children are having conversations with each other about these amazing topics and you just look at them and think, wow, you know, what an in- what an amazing conversation to be having at three or four years old, you know, to facilitate that learning and just be really present and involved in what they're all about or what's going through their mind and their feelings and just being a part of their journey. Like how special is that? You know, this is a space that they feel comfortable and safe and secure and they just love being in that space. And I think it's such a joy to be able to be part of their learning journey and help them, you know, to develop those skills that they're going to get ready for life. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. And so amazing that your community was so invested in the school that they didn't want to go anywhere else. Like that must've been amazing. (laughs) It is amazing. And now they want me to set up a primary school. <laughs> so, so I'm literally looking, uh, I've been looking for quite a few years now. I haven't stopped my search. So I am actively trying to look for a space to expand the school so that we can have, you know, all the programs running five days a week and, you know, look for a space. Cause we do also now, because we don't have a primary school, I do have kids that come after school that are school age that will do tutoring so they'll basically come after school for an hour or so and we'll use the Montessori materials Mm -hmm. to help with wherever whatever areas they're struggling with at school because in school they're just all they do is they sit there and they're told what they're told and it's like well if you get it you get it if you don't you don't that's your problem like deal with it or try and figure it out or you know that that's basically the mentality you know, there's one teacher, there's 30 kids, you all have to listen and try and learn as much as you can. There's not much support for kids that might be struggling or might need to learn a different way or might need a tactile way of understanding that. And that's what I love about Montessori materials. They're hands-on. If a child doesn't understand subtraction, I can pull out all of my, you know, golden bead sets and sit there and visually they can pick up and show me what subtracting looks like. You know, that's how you get kids to understand a concept, not by filling in a worksheet. (laughs) So it's literally just constantly trying to respond to the community and what they're looking for. And I, yeah, it's, it's, there's such a need for it, you know, with, with everyone kind of struggling with, you know, the mainstream way of teaching. A lot of people are looking to homeschooling. A lot Mm -hmm. of parents are not 
in a position where they can homeschool even if they want to. So having support programs like what we offer after school is really essential for some families because they wouldn't know what to do otherwise, you know? Yeah. What is the, what's the parent education component like in your school and how has that kind of taken shape? I guess maybe it's, does it have a lot of overlap with Guide and Grow? We haven't gotten into Guide and Grow yet, but I imagine Yeah, that's basically how Guide and Grow started. So I heard from a lot of my parents that they needed to do like consults with me or kind of have a chat with me before and after school. So those turned into phone conversations, which then turned into like, you know, proper consultations over Zoom. And then we used to run a workshop every month on how to get kids to listen. So that's my specialty topic. (laughs) And it's all about, you know, how to really help support children the Montessori way in communicating and guiding behavior and discipline and all that sort of stuff, positive discipline. Um, And so we used to run them in the school. So we'd have the parents come in of an evening or a weekend and, you know, do some professional development or topics that they might want to cover, have a QA and a session. And then I was thinking, you know what? I'm repeating myself every month. <laughs> what can I what can I do to really like, you know, address the parents' questions and do this on like a bigger scale and not only help the parents of my school, but parents of other people's schools and centers too because a lot of people in early childhood especially or even when they go to school and they have that year of school transition where they transition from preschool to kindergarten, it's a really difficult time for parents and they don't have support. They might have a little bit of support from the school if it's a you know really good school and they've got good teachers there. But I really feel like parents are kind of left to just navigate this on their own. And it really does take a village to raise children. So I then started Guide and Grow where I was hosting the workshop that I did online. And I would then allow access to everybody or all parents. And then I saw this need and, you know, somebody rang me one day or sent me a messenger request. And it was a colleague of mine in the Montessori community that does homeschooling for six to 12 year olds. And she was like, Oh, Sylvia, I've got this group. I think there was about a thousand people in it. The Montessori at home zero to three group. She goes, Oh, do you? And at that time I wasn't even on Facebook. I think I was like, I had just joined like totally late to the party. And uh, I had just joined Facebook not long ago. And then she was like, oh, this group. And I was like, oh, that, that's a lot of people. She's like, oh, it's not really active. Did you want to take over it? You know, uh, I don't have the time to manage it and stuff. And I was like, I wouldn't even know what to do. She's like, oh, it's really easy. And she gave me a few steps and whatever. Anyway, I was like, okay, why not? Another challenge, another something to do. So I was like, great, maybe these parents would be interested in learning more about, you know, just everything in general, just helping them on their journey. So I decided to take over that group. And within the first year, we had reached close to 100,000 members. And then in our second year, we had reached, yeah, almost 200,000. So it was just this exponential, you know, growth of, um, of the Facebook group, which is, what then launched Guide and Grow. So basically it involves YouTube videos. So I did a lot of, I do a lot of YouTube videos explaining different things about Montessori. Um, We've got blogs, we've got the Facebook group, which has lots of moderators in it. And we just, you know, where there are different topics that people can post about. Um, It's all free. We run an event every month as well. We bring in, we've brought in you. Uh, We did a live stream. I remember that with you Mm -hmm. about multilingual, um, 
the multilingualism in Montessori. So yeah, every month at the end of the month, we invite a different expert guest. We stream that across all our platforms for our members. So yeah, it's a really amazing space. Um, and it's a very authentic space because the moderators that I have, they're so amazing. And we really all care so deeply about helping people on their journey. You know, you don't need to know anything about Montessori. You can just literally join the Facebook group and, you know, read lots of posts that are up there and join the community. It's just a community of like-minded individuals who just want to help each other, you know, on this journey. Yeah. I, I joined the Facebook group before our talk and, you know, I, of course I don't have a child at home who's zero to three, uh, but I found myself reading the posts and reading the comments and everyone was so knowledgeable and supportive. So I definitely recommend parents joining the group, um, even just to read along and find out what other people are saying or doing or what their approach is. Yeah. And they can be, um, you know, Gabrielle, there can be a lot of misinformation. There can be a lot of different information out there. A lot of people can get confused about Montessori and have all these misconceptions. So I think my mission in life is to break down all of these misconceptions about Montessori. You have to have all the resources. You have to have this beautiful room with all these beautiful things. And, you know, all these things that make people feel really bad about the fact that they can't afford it or they can't have it, Mm. you know, they don't have access to it. It's all a misconception. Like you can do Montessori if you have nothing. That's how it started. You know, Maria Montessori started with, you know, children from low economic, low social economic um, status and in, you know, in really poor areas. Like it's, but it's not, it comes down to the principles is what I'm saying. Like people miss that. The, to impl- to put in place the principles of Montessori doesn't cost anything. And you can work with what you have in your environment. Don't let anyone make you feel like you can't do that because whatever it is in your space, whether it's a small space, whether you don't have access to materials, whatever it is, you can make use of what you have in your environment. And if you don't know how to do that, come into the group and say, look, this is the space that I have to work with. What can you guys suggest for me? Because I can tell yeah. you that a lot of minds working together will be so much more helpful than you trying to rack your brain and figure it out on your own, you know? Those are actually my favorite posts. Now that you say that, I remember seeing pictures of people posting their space and saying, I did this. Like, does anybody have any other suggestions? I, I thought it. that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's so, you know, it's so easy to fall into the comparison trap on Instagram with these picture perfect spaces. And of course, we know that's not what's at the heart of Montessori. That's not what Montessori is about. But I'm sure that parents can feel a lot of pressure uh, or get sucked into that. Like it has to look a certain way. And, you know, Gabrielle, we can appreciate those spaces as well. Like there's and, you know, you say about the comparison trap. It's, I'm sure that somebody's put a lot of effort and time to create that beautiful space, but it's about the way, you know, you respond to that. And you've really got to look inside yourself and say, you know what, I have a space too, and I can do what I can do with my space. And that's what matters the most. And, you know, if you're being authentic and you've got the right intention and you've got sincerity and you really just want to do the best for your child, that's what matters. You know, I really want to focus on that because I feel like people miss that, you know, Mm. in, in the hopes of doing Montessori, whatever that means to them.
Will you tell me a little more about Montessori with the elderly and maybe give an example of an activity that you might do with a toddler and you might do with someone with dementia? Yeah. um, Great question. So a lot of, there's actually more and more research. And I know that there's a group of people that really are so passionate about this um, this topic when it comes to Montessori and the elderly. And I know that they're trying to kind of raise more awareness for it um, and do more research behind it so that it's like a proven method to really help prolong the symptoms um, of dementia or Alzheimer's. Because unfortunately, at the moment, there's not much out there in terms of the research and, and the outcome for um, the elderly community. So one of the examples that I will never forget, there's there's two things that just will stick into my mind until the end of time. There was one lady. So in a toddler classroom, we sometimes have like a like a memory box or like something that has like different items. Uh, it could be different opening and closing items where they can open things and we'll have little objects inside it um, so that it can, they can practice their fine motor skills and different opening and closing activities. Um, or we could also put like different symbols um, or different, like, you know, it could be like a pearl necklace or like a little letter or, you know, just something from history, like a little uh, kind of like a treasure basket you know, with some interesting items, something made from metal, something made from plastic, something made from, you know, different fabrics and things like that. So I decided to take this basket along with me and I had put like a a little box that had a little latch where you can open and close it, kind of like an old jewellery box um, with, you know, a pearl necklace in it and, you know, um, I think it had a brooch and, so something made of metal and then a fabric jewelry box that they could open and close. And there was something else like a pearl necklace and maybe a handkerchief or something. Anyway, I had it in a beautiful basket and I just sat there and I just sat there with this beautiful lady. I don't know her name. Or I can't remember. And she was just looking at me and I was just looking at her and I just had the basket there in front of us. I didn't say anything. And this is the thing you know, we, we do that with babies, right? We just, we just present the materials and we just wait, you know, we don't kind of, you know, we don't instigate them. We just see like if they're going to explore the materials and stuff. So then she started kind of, you know, pulling the basket closer to her and she started, you know, exploring the items and pulling it out. And she let out this, this, you know, expression of surprise or delight. And, you know, and I could just tell that it had, jogged a memory or you know given her this expression or something for her like this feeling went through her that oh my gosh like and then she started talking about a specific incident that happened you know in her life you know all those years ago and oh this is from you know such and such and I you know and she was telling me this story and I just will never forget the fact that she was so invested and so authentic in that moment about telling me the story about where this thing had come from and who had given it to her. And, yeah. And then she was just so the surprise and the delight and the happiness on her face. I mean, such a small thing brought so much joy to her, you know? And then I remember another activity I did was, um, a number activity, like a counting one. I had playing cards and the, I used a few of the playing cards. It was this with this gentleman who was um, of a Lebanese background. And I personally, I'm Armenian, but I look, I have that kind of Arab look about me or that, you know, because our family, so my dad was born in Syria. 
Um, he is Armenian by heritage. My mum's side is Armenian by heritage, but her family is from Jerusalem. So we have a very mixed um, like background, but we're classified as Arab Armenians. So the Armenian culture has a few different types of classifications. You can be Armenian from Armenia, you can be Persian Armenian, or you can be an Arab Armenian, which means that you've migrated to like Lebanon, Syria, um, Jordan, like different countries. So this all happened after the war um, back in like a long time ago, more than 100 years ago. Uh, Armenia, we still have a country, but uh, quite a lot of people were displaced because we were invaded. We, we had a genocide back then. So it was a really hard time. So a lot of Armenians started moving. There's also Russian Armenians too. Anyway, back to my story. So that's where he kind of... Um, he was looking at me and anyway, so we, we had these cards and I had little counters that you could put on, you know, like a five card where you've got the five hearts or the five diamonds and you can just place a counter on each diamond or, you know, just as like a matching activity, one-to-one -one correspondence. This is what we do with our toddlers. And then he, so he started, he was doing it, you know, he was doing the activity and then he looked at me and he started talking to me in Arabic. And then one of the carers came over and he goes, he thinks that you're his relative and he's telling you a story <laughs> about, you know, his life and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and I didn't, I don't speak Arabic, um, even though I grew up in Dubai. That's a story for another day. Um, and so he was starting to talk to me and I, and I can get a few words here and there. And so I was trying, I can count in Arabic. So I was, you know, showing him the thing and, and he got all excited and he's hugging me and he's putting his arm around me and he just felt like he belonged. Like I'm going to get emotional, but it's really hard for people that are in homes, right? So that are in like homes and yes, these people might care for them or, you know, but they don't have that interaction with family members or people from their cultural community. And he just like to the day, I will never forget this moment, right? that I, I, by doing something so simple with someone, I brought so much like joy and, you know, history and whatever back into their life just for that moment. Anyway, so it's things like that, those interactions that really like mean things for people in that situation, like when they're, you know, elderly and they're in homes or they have dementia and they're suffering from that. These activities, even though so minor or so small, can help make them feel like they're engaging again. It's making their brains work in a way that hasn't been that otherwise they they don't have activities that they're doing, you know, or they're just sitting there and kind of just doing what whatever the carers are asking of them or doing with them. But it it's not how it these rich experiences that Montessori activities can provide in these environments. And it's so easy to set up. You know, like going in there, I could easily put a few things on the shelf that these people could have, that they could have access to, you know. But anyway, so that was my um, stories from, from then. But, yeah, it definitely left an impression on me and, yeah, just yeah, that's incredible. Amazing. It really is. The potential yeah. is so huge for that space. Yeah, I remember hearing about that when I did Montessori training Um but I didn't know any of the details really. I just knew that, um, you know, people had discovered a lot of the parallels, like you were saying, between the first mm. years of life and the last few years of life and the um, both, I guess, 
brain development, but also um, how, you know, the like the hand eye connection, coordination, all of that stuff. It's, it's incredible. Um, yeah. And I was just talking about it this weekend. Um, once I had mentioned that to my mom and she got very interested in it. Um, yeah. So she keeps telling me to find out more about Montessori with old people. I'm like, mom, you're not old people yet, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, but it has huge, huge potential. And like just talking about it, I think to myself, oh, that's something I really need to get back into because that's really where I started my Montessori journey. And then, of course, I developed a, a passion for toddlerhood. Like if you ask me what my favorite age in Montessori or working with children, it's definitely the toddler program. Like that 14 month to, you know, two when they're developing their sense of self and their personality and their character and, you know, the rules of life and how do I interact and boundaries and big emotions. It's like, I love it. It's my favorite. Yeah. Seeing all the little discoveries is just incredible. I know that's my favorite part of working with children too, being, being witness to the discoveries. It's amazing. Okay, let's talk a little bit about languages. So you actually touched on it a bit, but I would love to hear about your bilingual experiences as a child or any ling- language mm. linguistic experiences and um, and what role, if any, does bilingualism play in your life now? Yeah, what a big question. How much time do we have? <laughs> I feel like I could write a novel. Maybe I should just write a book. Yeah. <laughs> I So as I mentioned, so I was born in Sydney, Australia, um, and then my parents, uh, we moved to Dubai when I was probably three years old or so, um, and I grew up there. So I spent my primary school in Dubai very different place to what it is now. Uh, it was basically a desert when I grew up there. So not many streets, no, no buildings, just a desert and driving on the sand to get to school. <laughs> I remember someone asked me here when I first moved here, I was in year six, grade six, uh, just going into high school. They're like, oh, did you ride to school on a camel? <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah, you really need to learn a little bit more about cultures. But um, (laughs) anyway, so I grew up there and in school, uh, we, so my parents opted, so my parents were working in Dubai at the time and they opted for me to learn French at school. So we had a choice of learning French or Arabic as a second language. Now, when I say like learning it as a second language, I mean, literally as much as I learned English, we would learn French six hours a week. You know, it was full on. It wasn't just, you know, one hour a week or picking up a few words here and there. So I then learned French at school. And then I also went to Armenian school on a Saturday or like a weekend, Sunday, or I think it was the weekends were Friday, Saturday, if I'm not mistaken, or Sunday, Monday. I can't remember. Anyway, so we, so then I went to, so in my home, we would speak Armenian and English. And then at school, it would be English because that was the communal language for everyone. And then people who were learning Arabic. I remember I learned Arabic just in year one. So that was my first year or kindergarten. And then once I started in primary school in grade one, they call it grade one there and we call it year one here. That's why I keep mixing the two. Um, then I started learning French. So when I moved back to Australia, when I was in grade six, 
I was quite well advanced in terms of my French. So I ended up in high school doing my high school certificate, which is our year 12 end of year exams in French. I did that in year 10 um, because that was the level that I was at. So really bilingualism was all around me or multilingualism was all around me because I grew up basically in an Arab country. Um, I was hearing Arabic all around me, um, French at school and English, and then we would speak Armenian at home a little bit. You know, um, my mom wasn't as pushy for that as my father was. You know, my father was very much adamant about keeping the mother tongue and speaking the mother tongue and, you know, extra, you know, school on the weekends and all that. But it was for our own good. So I now speak, of course, English, French, uh, Armenian, I know a few words in Arabic. I, When I came back to Australia in high school, I kind of did my French um, high school certificate and then I haven't really had an opportunity to practice it. So, you know, it was only my sister and I that spoke French and then, you know, we'd kind of, we were still going to Armenian school on the weekend and my parents were trying to you know, speak to us at home in Armenian, but really because we're now in an English-speaking country, we all just defaulted back to English. So even though we had that as our second language in the home, it was kind of like a mix of Armenian and English in the home. As for my French, I recently discovered and realised how amazing it was for me to have that on my trip to Lebanon. So I went to Lebanon and in January um, or December last year and it was incredible. And I didn't speak Arabic, but I, because I spoke French, everyone, a lot of people speak French as a second language. So if they yeah. didn't speak English, I could then pull out my French out of the bag, which was which was a bit rusty, but once you start talking it, it's amazing how the brain just remembers and everything starts flowing again, you know? Yes. So, yeah, yeah I found that that was really helpful. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I really had this interest to start learning Arabic again. So I started with the characters and learning, and I guess from hearing it a lot, especially in Lebanon, then I was off to Dubai and Egypt. I was picking up words and I could actually get the gist of the conversations that people were having. So I think that in my day-to-day -day life, I still feel like languages are all around me, you know, all the time with interactions with family and, you know, um, other people in my personal life. And yeah, so, but I don't think it has like a, in my everyday. And sometimes we, Definitely in the school, if we have children that have other languages as well, we might do songs and we integrate it into the curriculum where we do, you know, I pull out some of my French learning and we we might do some, you know, colours and things in French and sing in Spanish and, you know, depending on what kids we have in the classroom. So we'll always try and integrate their cultures and their languages in the classroom. Uh, but we have a very, very uh, multicultural classroom. I mean, yesterday was Harmony Day. And if I tell you the list of countries where the children are from, we literally have a global society. We have a global community. <laughs> it's incredible. Oh, that's great. Anyway, so, yeah, that's a bit about my experiences as a child with languages and stuff. I absolutely love languages. Let me just put it out there. Um, you know, I, I love learning them. I love speaking them. It's something that I'm really... I'm really grateful that my parents kind of pushed for us to all chose or opted to have that, you know, in our lives. So, yeah. Yeah. Is, um, is bilingualism or a bilingual program something that parents ever ask you about? Um, I know that 
so many Montessori schools in Europe are bilingual, less so in the United States. That's an understatement. Um, what is that like? <laughs> and <laughs> what is it? Oh, it's what the is same kind of... <laughs> here. It's the yeah. same here, to be honest. Like I look, I will do it. I might put things into the curriculum, you know, to encourage language and all that, or see, you know, if we can integrate that, especially if, if kids don't have English as their first language and say they only speak Spanish at home or they, you know, just to make the child feel more comfortable in their transition into school. Like we have done that before where we've learned certain, you know, words and, you know, to help them integrate into our space, but there isn't a huge ask for it from our parents. Like I'll tell you the, the countries, like we've literally got Serbian, Macedonian, Egyptian, Filipino, um, we've got South African, we've got Indian, Pakistani, we've got um, Colombian, like I'm like we've every child Polish, you know, it's just it's such a beautiful mix. And so because it was Harmony Day in um, Australia on Tuesday, we celebrate different cultures and acceptance and all that. So we've got all these flags up of different countries and everyone's coming in cultural dress. We had this beautiful um, young girl whose mother is Korean and her outfit was just beautiful. You know, cultural dress is amazing. And so we got to explore all of that. So I think these celebrations or days that we have encourages parents to, you know, bring that to light and, you know, talk about cultural aspects and bring that into the curriculum. We can, you know, kind of explore languages and words and things. But other than that, it's not really a big thing. You know, we don't have, you know, French and English schools or Spanish and English schools or, you know, bilingual Montessori schools here. It's yeah. Which, yeah, it, 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 seems that there's an opportunity for that. But I also feel like because it's such a multicultural society, there's not one dominant or like, you know, language that would be something that the parents would be looking for, you know, to mm. kind of, I think every parent would be wanting me to open like a school that was, you know, uh, having Polish as a second language or Arabic as a second language or, you know, or, you know, other languages. So it would be difficult to kind of integrate that unless it was a multilingual um, school. But, yeah. yeah, no, it's not a big ask from 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 our community. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I love that, um, that it's so multicultural, though. That really is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was incredible. When we did the list of countries and we were putting sticking, like we've got these little flag stickers on everyone's, you know, we were just like, wow, this is incredible. Like the reflection of, of understanding that we've got all that, all these people from different backgrounds and cultures and yeah, yeah, we're all Australian, but everyone's got a story and a background. And so, yeah, it was so beautiful to see that. So back to the toddler years, what, <laughs> advice do you have for parents when it comes to navigating the toddler years? I'm sure that some people, um, maybe not the audience of this podcast, since this is a self-selecting loving children audience, but I'm sure many people, when you say that you love toddlers, that it's your favorite age group, I'm sure people are just astounded <laughs> because I think the toddler years scare a lot of people. So what what do you um what do you yeah. advise parents when it comes to navigating the toddler years and what are some ways that they can enjoy the toddler years? <laughs> 
Yeah, I had this big grin on my face. I know you guys can't see that when uh, Gabrielle was asking <laughs> me that question. But because, you know, it just, okay, the advice that I'm going to give, it's a roller coaster journey. So you're going to have like the highest highs and the lowest lows, but it's all part of the experience. You know, the thrill of a roller coaster and then the thing that terrifies you the most and the thing that scares you the most. And then you just want to like run away because it's just too overwhelming. The biggest thing I can say to parents is take every moment for what it is. A lot of the times parents will put pressure on themselves. And I literally just recorded a reel on this this morning you know, why is my child having tantrums? Why do they hit me? Why are they, you know, being like that at home and they're not like that at daycare and all of these questions. Let me tell you, a toddler is just being a toddler. So when they're displaying these big emotions and they're struggling and they're having a tantrum, that is their way of communicating with you that something isn't right. I'm trying to tell you that I'm going through something emotionally, mentally, physically, and I don't know how to communicate it to you. This is the only way I know how. Big emotions, you know, having the tantrums, not understanding how to function or rationalize those emotions. You know, the front part of the brain that deals with emotional regulation, I harp on about it a million times. It doesn't get fully developed until a child is 26 years old. That means a lot of the children that you guys that are listening out there that you might have, even if they're teens, they can't still regulate their emotions. So when they feel a certain way, they might say something irrationally. They might do something irrationally because that's their reflexive action. That's all they know how to do. They don't know any other way. We need to help them to co-regulate. They look for the adult to bring them down, to calm them down or to help them in that moment to support them. So it's not a personal thing. Don't feel guilty that you're doing something wrong. That's my biggest advice. You are not doing anything wrong. All toddlers will go through that. Find the right support around you. Make sure that you have the right support of a like-minded community that can really help you, guide you in those moments um, and know that it's the funnest times of your life and children are so forgiving what happens in a moment. So say, for example, you know, parents, they're only human. You you're dealing with it 24 seven. It's tiring. You haven't had sleep. Your child's waking up 50 times of the night. You know, they just want your attention all day. They're dragging you here, dragging you there. You're trying to prepare this. You're trying to do work online, whatever it is. And you just don't have patience anymore. So you just lose it. Now, no parent wants to do that. They, we don't intentionally, you know, lose it for no reason. You're tired, you're stressed, but that's a learning opportunity, right? That's a moment where you can say, I'm so sorry, I yelled. I really didn't want to respond that way. That wasn't the right thing to do, right? Toddlers will get over it. It's not going to scar them for life. Don't think that you've, <laughs> don't feel guilty that you think that you've scarred your child because you've acted like the only, you know, you're like a human being and, you know, you, you're really stressed in that moment and it's okay. It's okay to make amends. It's okay to say sorry to them. It's just learning. Everybody's learning. You're going to be learning a lot about yourself as a parent, as a caregiver, you know, as an educator, when you're dealing with children, they show up our personalities, our faults, our character traits. They will push us to our limit. 
So this is all part of the journey, you know. It's the joy of being around toddlers and dealing. And yes, it's exhausting and tiring and stressful, but it can also have all of these beautiful moments of joy and achievement and, you know, oh, I did it. I did it myself. You know, the first time they put their shoe on by themselves and they're looking at you with this joy in their face and, oh, you know, how exciting. And yeah, it's just, it has these moments where it just takes you back to, wow, you know, so just enjoy it, enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy the highs, enjoy the lows, be present in the moment. Those years will pass and you won't get them back again. Um, you know, this is, these are the years that a child is learning how to talk, how to walk, how to, you know, how to be independent toileting, how to be independent dressing. These are life skills. They're going to take that with them for the rest of their lives. So if you can, you know, be forgiving of yourself, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, children are, will act, you know, the way they do because they, that's developmentally appropriate and normal. So we have to adjust our expectations, now, don't expect a two-year-old to listen to what you're saying and do as they're told <laughs> in that moment because that's the wrong kind of approach if you want get, to get kids to listen. And uh, if you don't know how to do that, you're welcome to come along to one of my sessions or events or reels. You know, I talk about this stuff all the time. But, yeah, that's the advice that I have for parents. Awesome. Thank you so much. I think that is going to um, resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. I just really appreciate Gabrielle, you taking the time to talk about my journey and like, I kind of, I went so deep, I didn't even realize I was <laughs> head down a certain, you know, paths or journey. And I think that's the beauty about, you know, talking about things and how you started. We often forget, we forget where we've come from or how we started on our journey. And when we kind of go back there, it just really resonates with me and it, and it really, solidifies why it is that I'm doing what I'm doing. So yeah, thanks yeah. for that. I really enjoyed it. It was amazing. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Well, thank you for taking the time to share your story and for taking the leap to be on your first podcast. I'm honored mm -hmm. that it was on my <laughs> podcast. Um, And yeah, thank you for such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. It was incredible. And to everyone out there that's listening just do the best that you can because that's all that you can do. So, yeah, and this is a journey. We're all in it together. So make sure you've got all the most amazing support around you. And Gabrielle is one of those people. She's incredible. And I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity. So thanks for inviting me. <laughs> hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sylvia. You can find Guide and Grow on Instagram and Facebook at Guide and Grow and be sure to join the Montessori at Home 0 to 3 Years Facebook group. You can find all of Sylvia's videos on YouTube at Guide and Grow TV, which is also where you can find my conversation with Sylvia about supporting the multilingual child from January 2023. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.